Welcome to the Determined Truth Podcast. I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Where we aim to explore questions of truth, the scriptures, and what it means for the church today. Here's your host, Rob Dalrymple. Hello everybody, my name is Rob Dalrymple. I want to welcome you to my podcast in the book of Revelation. For those of you who are interested, I encourage you to get a copy of my book, Follow the Lamb. It's a guide on how to read, understand, and apply the book of Revelation. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast by downloading the Podbean app on your smartphone and following the Determined Truth podcast. For now, I hope you sit back and enjoy our study of the book of Revelation. Today's podcast addresses the issue of the rapture. One of the questions I'm commonly asked is, do you believe in the rapture? It's a question that in all honesty I really can't answer. Uh, and I can't answer because there's a certain definition of rapture that's involved in the question and uh, that presupposes a whole understanding of the biblical text that I don't actually agree with. So in my chapter in Understanding the New Testament and the End Times, uh, on chapter 8 on the, the tribulation of the people of God, I have a small section dealing with the rapture there, and I encourage you to go to that book and, and, and read thoroughly. What I present in that chapter is that tribulation and suffering is the lot of the Christian life. Jesus promises us tribulation. He promises us suffering. The Apostle Paul says in Acts 14 uh, that we must go through much tribulation to enter the kingdom of God. Well, this necessarily raises a question for some Christians who have this understanding of the rapture that says that when God brings wrath upon the world, he's going to take the Christians out of the way so that we won't have to experience or suffer or undergo uh, any suffering or any of God's wrath. My whole response to that, of course, is that this presupposes a conception of the Bible that's not agreed upon at all by almost all of the scholarly world, a very small segment of uh, evangelical Christians who hold to a particular perspective called dispensationalism, and even amongst them not all agree in the, the notion of a rapture that, that's being espoused there. So let me respond a couple of different ways. First off, let's look at one of the key texts, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. Uh, one of the key texts that's often espoused for those who believe in the rapture. Uh, let's look at that, and then we'll dis- uh, I'll discuss it. Then we'll look at Matthew 24, another passage that's also presented as uh, uh, arguing for a rapture, and then we'll discuss the idea of the rapture as a whole. First Thessalonians, Thessalonians 4, verse 13 says, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as to the rest of those who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of God, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord shall not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. Um, Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The context of this passage appears to be the fact that Paul had uh, likely been expressing the notion that Jesus' return, or uh, what we might call the second coming, was, was imminent. It was going to be soon. The church in Thessalonica had been undergoing some persecution and some suffering, and uh, the things that were happening, they thought, was an indication that Jesus' return was going to be uh, uh, soon. But apparently, while they were waiting for the return of Jesus, some of the Christian members of the church had died. Uh, and it was their fear that those who had passed away, those who had died, had missed the second coming of Jesus, or what people might call the rapture, the, the rising up or resurrecting up of the saints. Paul responds by saying, look, brothers, I don't want you to be uh, concerning those who have fallen asleep. And fallen asleep is a, a figure of speech, a euphemism for those who have died. 
Uh, they, they were experiencing grief over, over the death of some uh, and, and were wondering. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant about this. Now, Paul's statement that I don't want you to be ignorant about this, probably or uninformed, suggests that Paul had never instructed them on this particular matter before. He doesn't remind them of something that he previously said, as he does in other, other, other letters of his. Um, but he says, here's the here's reality. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, this is verse 14, uh, even so we believe that God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. This is what's called a conditional sentence in Greek. It's an if-then. If we believe this, then this is the case. And the type of conditional sentence that Paul has written there basically says that if the first part is true, then the second part is necessarily true. The first part of the sentence is, if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and that is necessarily true, that's a, a core belief that Paul's affirming that you guys already hold to this belief, then we also believe that Jesus will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Christ. So there's nothing to fear. Those who have passed away, those who have died, haven't missed the second coming of Jesus and all the things that are involved with that. They, in fact, are coming back with Jesus at his return. Then Paul says in verse 4, 15, he says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, or by the Lord's own word. Uh, and it probably refers to, commonly Paul uses this phrase, to refer to something that Jesus himself said, a message of Christ often found in the Gospels. Uh, we can reference passages in the book of Acts as well. And he says it this way, he says, We who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have died or those who have fallen asleep. So here's the reality. Uh, uh, those who have died get to be the, the, the first ones to, to participate in this event. Uh, and, and without going further in the passage for a moment, let me, let me express it this way. Uh, my wife and I have Bible studies in our home uh, pretty regularly. We have church that meets in our home uh, on a weekly basis as well. And people that are regulars that come over every week, they know just walk on in. Uh, they might knock on the door first as they walk in, but they just walk in. We don't get up to greet them. We just say, hey, how you doing? How's it going? Um, sometimes we'll, we'll, we'll greet them a little bit. Um, other people, maybe that's there, they're coming for the first time. They aren't going to do that. They're going to knock on the door. And we know if someone knocks on the door and no one opens the door that it's got to be somebody new. It's got to be somebody who's not used to coming here. So we're going to definitely go to the door and answer the door and, and, and greet them. Now, let's suppose um, somebody else of uh, some local significance were coming over uh, our house. We we probably would be expecting their their arrival a little bit more. You know, we we'd be looking out the window and and seeing if they're going to come. And and if they're going to when they arrive, we might even open the door and and go out and 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 greet them and welcome them to our home instead of making them come to a, a closed door. Well, the description of this passage that Paul's using here is actually the same description of the arrival of a king or the official visit of some royal person to a city. Uh, the word parousia, uh, parousia, uh, the, the coming of the Lord as it's translated. This word parousia means the coming of a glorious or significant or official visit of a royal person to a city. And here's the reality. If a king's going to come visit your city, he better not find the gates shut. If the king comes and knocks on the gate, he's going to leave. He is not going to come. What's going to happen then uh, in a ceremony of this nature is the king who's been away is coming back to his city with maybe with the army. They're returning back to the capital city. And what's going to happen is he's going to be led by a herald or a, a trumpeter. The herald is going to then command for the gates to be open. Now, there's going to be a watchman up in the gates, and he's going to see them coming. And, of course, the watchman's going to have to make sure that this isn't somebody else, that this isn't a, a fraud before he opens the city gates to maybe a foreign invasion. So he's going to say, you know, stand and identify yourself. The herald then identifies who this royal figure is. 
Uh, Psalm 24 says, it is the king of glory. That's the idea of this herald uh, identifying the royal figure. It's the king of glory. So once the watchman then identifies that it's indeed the king who's coming, you know, some, some distance off as the herald or precedes the king, then the gates would be open and a greeting committee would go out to meet the king or this royal figure and then begin to escort him back into the city. And as the king begins to approach the city now, he's being uh, uh, greeted and welcomed by this uh, by the dignitaries of the local city. Uh, then maybe as he gets a little bit closer, then maybe the next level of dignitaries in the city will come out to meet him, and then the next level, and then the commoners are all going to be at the city gates. Uh, this is the language that Paul is using to describe the return of Jesus, and says, look, when Jesus comes back, when he, when he returns, uh, it's got to happen uh, this way. The first thing that's got to happen uh, is uh, there's going to be this uh, a loud command. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a, with a shout, uh, with the voice of an archangel. And the shout and the voice of the archangel might very well be the same thing. It's a, the, the heralder will be the archangel, maybe Michael or something like that. Then there'll be the trumpet of God. And then the dead in Christ will rise first. The heralder will announce the arrival of Jesus. Note, by the way, that this is a, a public event. Uh, this is a herald. Uh, it's not some private secret thing that's only going to be noticed by a few. It's a, it's a loud command, a loud shout. The trumpet of God uh, goes up. And then the first ones to go out and greet the king are the dead. They are the most dignified, noble members of the city who are going to greet this king, this royal figure, as he comes back into the city. Paul says, and then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the, in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So now the question is, you know, well, Rob, do you believe in the rapture? Well, if you mean by rapture, and the word rapture comes from the Latin word for uh, caught up together with them in the, in the clouds, rapere, meaning caught to be seized or caught up together with them. Um, if you mean by that, that uh, do I believe that Christians will be resurrected at the return of Jesus, whether if we're dead, our physical bodies will be resurrected and maybe reunite with our souls and escort Christ back in the city, or, or if we happen to still be alive at the return of Jesus, are we going to be resurrected up in the clouds to, to escort Christ back into the city? If, if that's what you mean by rapture, then of course I believe in the rapture. In fact, I, th I would say all Christians and scholars uh, believe and affirm the rapture. But that's often not what's meant by the question. What's meant by the question is, do you believe that Christians will be t captured and taken up into heaven in some secret uh, uh, seizing of Christians where we're suddenly gone and vanished from the earth? Uh, maybe seven years before the return of Jesus or three and a half years before the time the, the return of Jesus. If that's what you mean by rapture, I'd say, well, no, no, I don't believe that that, that idea uh, uh, any bit whatsoever. Notice that this is a public event, not some private seizing. Notice that, of course, there's no indication at all that, that the Christians are taken up into heaven, spend seven years or three and a half years or, or any time at all. The whole idea of this passage is that the king is coming back to a city and the royal officials of the local city are then, or the, or the, the, the significant officials in that city are then going to go out to meet Christ and escort him back into the city. There's certainly no indication of a delay. Paul, in fact, concludes, uh, uh, thus will be with the Lord forever. So Paul is describing the second coming of Christ and the fact that the dead have not missed his coming at all. In fact, they're the most noble officials with the city, in the city, and they are the ones who go escort, uh, uh, leading escorts of Christ back into the city. Well, at this point, someone will say, well, what about Matthew chapter 24? I mean, clearly, uh, Jesus' description of his return describes uh, the rapturing of Christians up into heaven. So uh, let's look at this passage itself. Matthew 24, let's look, I'm going to look at verses 36 through 41. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, 
nor the Son, but the Father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days, which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage, until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. There shall be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. Let me look at verse 42 as well. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. Now, at first sight, if you have this understanding of a rapture that Christians are seized and taken out of the way, it seems to make sense of this particular passage. After all, two people will be working in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. But when we look at the passage a little bit more carefully, we realize it's actually teaching the exact opposite of what is proposed in the idea of a rapture. First off, Jesus says, no one knows that day or hour. I don't know when I'm coming. But here's what I do know, and that's this. You need to be on the alert. That's why I read verse 42. Therefore, be on the alert, because you don't know which day your Lord is coming. Now, Jesus goes on to describe in the rest of that passage what it looks like to be on the alert, and that is by giving their food to the members of the household at their proper time. You know, Making disciples and being faithful with the work of God's kingdom is what it means to be on the alert. You know, I have a note in my book, Understanding the New Testament and the End Times, as well, that will Christians be surprised at the second coming of Jesus? And the answer is, well, no. Um, Now, I'll be surprised in the sense that I don't know when it's going to happen, but when it happens, I'll be prepared. See, if you mean by surprise, I'll be taken unawares or or unexpected, then the answer is, well, no, that's not going to happen at all. That's why the New Testament constantly tells us to be ready and to be prepared. So, you know, I I use the illustration that if uh, parents are uh, going out for the night and they leave their older kids and say, hey, look, you know, kids, uh, mom and dad are going to go out for some dinner and stuff and we'll be home a little bit late. You guys make sure you get your homework done and make sure you do your chores. And then if you have time, you can watch a brief TV program and make sure you're in bed by nine. Well, kids that are not uh, doing what mom and dad said and they're still up, they never did the dishes and they're playing video games and never even ate dinner, let alone their homework. All of a sudden, mom and dad roll up at 10 o'clock and they begin to scramble like cockroaches, right? Like, like cockroaches in the light, right? Uh, and they're, they're trying to get the dishes washed. They're trying to turn the TV off and they're trying to make them running upstairs and getting into bed and, and whatever else. Those kids are surprised. And they're surprised because they were not prepared. They didn't know when exactly mom and dad were coming, but they weren't prepared. Whereas if there are kids that are doing exactly what mom and dad said and maybe they're still in bed maybe they're still maybe they're still maybe they're in bed but they're still awake mom and dad will roll into the room at 10 o'clock hey how's it going oh great hey good to see you mom how was dinner how was you know i hope, hope you had a good time they were surprised in the sense that they did not know exactly when mom and dad were coming but they were prepared and therefore they weren't surprised in the sense that they were unready or unprepared for it this is the message of what jesus is saying but when he tells the, the, the disciples who are listening to the message now in Matthew 24 is this, is the world will not be like that. They will be taken by surprise. And he says, the coming of the Son of Man will be just like it was in the days of Noah. And what happened in the days of Noah was they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark. The, the point is, they should have, Noah had been proclaiming that the flood was coming. They had plenty of warning signs. But instead, they went on with life as normal, and they failed to heed the warning signs of Noah. And as a result, when it came, they were surprised. Uh, They didn't understand until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now notice, and here's the key question. 
when when the people were taken away, the question is, is what people were taken away? Was it Noah or was it those who were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark? And the answer is, Noah was preserved. It was the wicked who were taken. Noah entered the ark, and those who remained were all swept away with the flood. So when it says that there will be two men in the field, one, one will be taken, one will be left, the question is, is, who's left? And the answer is, it's the righteous who are left. The wicked are taken in judgment. Notice the parallel with the flood. With Noah, the righteous were preserved, and the wicked were taken away in judgment. So this passage actually teaches quite the opposite of a rapture, that the righteous are taken up into heaven and the wicked are left behind. Instead, um, the wicked are the ones who are taken away in judgment, and it's the righteous who are left behind. And how do we determine who the righteous are that are left behind? The answer is, they were righteous. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, if the head of the household had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you too be ready, for the Son of Man will, is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. That's Matthew 24, verses 42 through 44. So the notion of a rapture, I would make a couple of responses. One is, uh, there's no historical precedence at all in the church for the idea of a rapture. This theology came about maybe a little less than 200 years ago. Uh, it really started to flourish around the year 1900 or so. Um, uh, the rapture is a product, actually, of a of a dualistic worldview that's the product of the Enlightenment. Uh, this dualistic worldview that says there's heaven and there's earth, there's the spiritual and there's the physical. Um, and, and what it came to believe was that the, the physical world is evil and the spiritual world is good. Um, our soul is good. Our body is evil. And, and God's going to bring judgment and wrath upon the world. And, and the righteous and spiritual are going to be exempt from that uh, uh, and taken out of the way. The problem, though, is that this dualistic worldview doesn't fit with the notion that God is in the process of restoring his creation. Rapture theology and this dualistic understanding that heaven is some spiritual place we go to escape the earth fails to recognize that God's not going to destroy the earth, but he's going to redeem it. He's going to resurrect it. As Paul says in, Rom in Romans chapter 8, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope, that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption and in the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So the rapture theology suggests that the world's going to burn up and God's going to destroy the world with fire, which doesn't mean he's going to destroy the world with fire, by the way. In Second Peter, fire is a reference to judgment and purification, not to elimination and destruction. But uh, God's going to destroy the world with fire and, and, and all these things, and, and we're going to escape from it and go, and go to heaven someday. This rapture uh, no notion then is also escapist. Uh, it derives from the idea that God's wrath is never against the righteous. And so it reads the book of Revelation as though uh, everything in the book of Revelation is suggesting that God's wrath is going to be upon the world. He takes the church out of the way and, 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 and spews out his wrath upon the world. And some of the people repent, but most of them don't repent. And unfortunately, they all go to hell. Um, but this is never espoused in Scripture. For one, the idea that when God's wrath is against the the wicked, that the righteous have to be taken out of the way, it doesn't even seem to fit. All one has to do is look at the Exodus, when the Israelites were not taken out of the world, even though God brought his wrath upon the wicked. No, no, when God brings his wrath upon the wicked, it does not affect the righteous. In the book of Exodus, we see that the plagues in Egypt did not affect the Israelites in the land of Goshen. They didn't have to be taken out of the world to be exempt from God's wrath. But what's also important to note about the Exodus example 
is that when God uh, brought his wrath upon the Egyptians, it did make things worse for the Israelites. For example, when Moses brings plagues upon Egypt, the Pharaoh decides he's going to make life harder for the Israelites. It actually increases the suffering of God's people, not because they suffer under God's wrath, but because they suffer under the wrath of the world, who themselves are suffering under the wrath of God. Now, in addition, another problem with the rapture is the fact that Scripture explicitly states, blessed are those who are persecuted. So the question becomes this, why would God remove his people, who will likely suffer more persecution when God brings wrath upon the world? And then by taking God's people out of the way, he is depriving them of the opportunity to be blessed for enduring that persecution and suffering. All one has to do is read the book of 1 Peter and realize that the people of God are called to suffer for the sake of Christ, just as Jesus suffered. Paul says in the book of Philippians, chapter 1, verse 29, that for you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The entirety of the New Testament espouses that the God's people are called to suffer. God's people are called to suffer faithfully. For those of you who have listened to the podcast in the book of Revelation that I did, we'll note that the, the nations are converted by the faithful, persevering, sacrificial, loving witness of God's people. That's how the nations are converted. They're not converted because God brings his wrath upon the world and some of them are driven to repentance. We saw in the book of Revelation, in fact, that, re that wrath never brings repentance. The, those who were not killed by these plagues still do not repent of the work of their hands. The narrative in the book of Revelation then suggests that the nations are actually converted because God's people faithfully, lovingly, sacrificially uh, persevere and, and witness to, uh, for the sake of the nations. And in their death and in their resurrection, the nations are then converted. So this rapture theology and the escapism that it presents is actually kind of dangerous. For one, I'm going to make mention of the fact that we are never told in Scripture that God's going to take the people, the righteous out of the way. Instead, as Jesus says in John 17, 17, Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. We're told that God will protect us in the midst of suffering, not make us exempt from suffering. Now, it's at this point that some would like to quote Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, where Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And they say, See? The church in Ephesus is told that they're going to be kept from the hour of testing. What's important to note, however, is that the Greek text in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10 is identical to John 17, 17. It doesn't say that I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing in the sense that I'm going to take you away from it. It means I'm going to keep you through the hour of testing. Just as Jesus says, Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. I'm not going to keep you out of the world, Jesus is telling the church in, in Ephesus. I'm going to keep you in the midst of this suffering and testing. I'm going to preserve you. I'm going to keep you and protect you and preserve you. Now, in addition, I'd also note that this idea of a rapture theology has no historical roots in the Christian church. And in fact, today, very few Christian theologians uh, espouse the idea of a rapture. It has become popular because the mainstream books and the Hal Lindsey textbooks that have presented the idea of a rapture, has propagated this notion in the, in the popular Christian theology. But I can assure you that very few scholars in the church have ever espoused it. Obviously, it didn't come about until the 1800s. Um, and very few Christian theologians espouse it today. Now, you might notice in my tone a little bit that I'm passionate about this issue. And I'm passionate about it because of, of one simple reason, and that is rapture theology and the escapism that it, that it presents is really anti-missional. It goes against the very mission of Jesus and the call of the church. Jesus told us to go out and proclaim the gospel to the nations. And we find in the message of the book of Revelation that in doing so, we're going to suffer at the hands of the people for such. 
but it's because of our suffering and our faithfully persevering in suffering and the subsequent resurrection of God's people that the nations are actually converted. So I think that rapture theology then, even though it has this good uh, 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 intentions of, well, God's going to protect his people and God's sovereign and holy and he cares for his people, it has that good intention. It actually leads to a very dangerous theological uh, uh, conviction that I'm supposed to be passively watching what happens in the world, not actively engaged in the mess of the world, trying to bring justice and truth and righteousness to the world, because sooner or later the world's going to get so bad that we're just going to get out of this world and we're going to escape. So there you have it. I hope that answers a question that's commonly raised about the idea of the rapture. Not only is it not found in the scripture, the two biblical texts that are used to uh, justify the idea of a rapture or some seven years escaping of the church of some nature or three and a half years uh, is not found in the biblical text, especially the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus says the wicked are the ones who are taken, the righteous are the ones who are left. Uh, and the idea of a rapture it just is, problem, is problematic for Christian theology and for the, the mission of the church and the mission of God's people. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you would like more information on the Determined Truth podcast, you can find us on iTunes. You can follow Rob's blog at DeterminedTruth.com or purchase his books on Amazon.com. See you next time.